Well, I need to make some adjustments in my message this morning because I had some pictures to show you, and I can't do that. But let me ask you this. Um, how many of you have ever seen a TV show called Law and Order? Okay, and there are different um, varieties of this show. There's Law and Order SVU, um, and there's Law and Order Criminal Intent. We live in a country where there are a lot of what? A lot of laws, and a lot of people to enforce those laws to keep order. I was reading this week about some new traffic um, laws that needed to be implemented in California. The city was uh, San Mateo, and the problem is that people were just speeding through the suburbs, and the police department was understaffed, so they came up with this brilliant idea. They decided to park police cars at different locations in these neighborhoods and to put a mannequin inside dressed as a police officer. I had a really cool picture to show you of that. But they actually had a name for this officer. It was Officer David Coy, known as Decoy. And it was really successful. People would slow down and whoa. And so here's what happened. The police were so proud of their success, they actually published a story in the newspaper telling people how effective it was. And of course, that was the end of that program. But we really do live in a nation ruled by laws, or at least that's the expectation because of our heritage. I read this week that the state of California last year passed 900 new laws. And it begs the question, I mean, why do we have so many laws? Why do we need so many laws? Why do so many people break the law? Well, today we're continuing our series called The Teacher Who Changed the World. Now, last week, Pastor Phil did an outstanding job presenting what Jesus taught about worry. And I hope that was really helpful for you in some very practical ways. Today we're going to look at another topic, and it's the topic of God's law. And the question is, well, what does that have to do with my life? I mean, what does God's law have to do with, you know, how I um, navigate my marriage or raise my kids or at work? I mean, what does it really mean for me and you? And that's what I want us to, to really take a look at this morning. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at some verses in Matthew chapter 5. Now, there's a section of Matthew's biography of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus has this extended teaching time. And in this section that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is talking about the role of God's law in our lives. So if you've got your Bible open, turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, that's on page 786. We're going to start in verse 17, and this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Take a look at your outline. Here's the first question. What is the law? Well, typically, the law refers to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's referred to as the law. And more specifically, the law is a reference to the Ten Commandments that God gave his people through Moses. That's when he was on the, the top of Mount Sinai. Now, I remember as a kid, one of the things that I learned was the Ten Commandments. And I had a picture for you representing the Ten Commandments. And I wanted you to see this, but picture this in your mind, the two tablets of the law. There's one on the left and one on the right. The first tablet has the first four commandments. And these commandments have to do with our relationship with God. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, don't make any graven images. That's a prohibition against idols. Number three is where God says, hey, don't 
take my name in vain. And then number four is about the Sabbath day. We need to take a break to honor and worship God. Now, if you look in your mind's eye to the other side of the law, there are six commandments, and these commandments have to do with our relationships with each other because the fifth commandment is honor your mother and father. Number six is you shall not murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight, don't steal. Number nine, don't bear false witness. Number ten, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Now, here's the question that I want you to think about. What is the purpose of the law? Why did God give us these rules to live by? Now, many of us growing up were probably taught that the Ten Commandments were designed to teach us right from wrong. How many of you learned that as a kid growing up? Or you're teaching your, your kids that? The Ten Commandments help you know what's right or wrong. But here's the question. What actually makes something wrong? Think, think about this. You're a parent and you've got several kids and one of your children comes to you and says, Mommy, Mommy, Jimmy told a lie about me. So you go to little Jimmy and say, Jimmy, look, you can't be telling lies about your brother. And little Jimmy folds his arms and looks at you and says, Why? Why is it wrong? I like telling lies about my brother. Now, you have different choices. You could say, well, because I'm the mommy and I said so. Or I'm the daddy and that's what we do around here. You could say that. Or you could say, you know what? God says that you shall not bear false witness against your brother. It says right here. Look, look at the list. Number nine. It says right there. Now, that'd be better because you're appealing to a higher authority. But fundamentally, why is it wrong to bear false witness against your neighbor? And here's the answer because it violates the character of God. See, God is true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you bear false witness against your neighbor, you're violating the essence of God's character. Or how about this? Number seven. Number seven says, do not commit adultery. Why is it wrong to be unfaithful to your spouse? Well, it's because it violates the character of God. God is faithful, always. Always. God always keeps his promises, so when you are unfaithful, you are violating the very character of God. So what is the purpose of the law? Take a look at your outline. To show us the character of God. To show us the character of God. So let me ask you this. Does God's moral law, and that's a reference to the Ten Commandments, do those laws ever change? Thank you. That's exactly right. I mean, does God ever say, you know... Let's see, I need commandment number 11. Um, thou shalt honor and listen to thy pastor. No, there, there's no new commandments. There's 10 commands that God gives us to live by. And Jesus taught that those commands apply to all people in all places and all generations. There's an absolute authority of God's law for us. And that brings us to the next purpose of the law, to show us how God wants us to live. God's law is intended to show us how to live in this world. Now, if you're a parent, do you have any rules that you expect your kids to obey? Hopefully the answer is yes. And why do you have rules? For example, if you're a mom or a dad, why do you say, hey, hey, don't play in the road? Why do you have that rule? To protect your child because they could get hit by a car. Now, why do you have that rule? Four-letter word starts with L. Yeah, good, I'm glad you guys are getting this. Yeah, because you love your child. Now think about this from God's perspective. Why does God have these commands? They're there to protect us from the consequences of wrong choices. And God gives us these commands because he loves us. In fact, it's really intriguing when Jesus is asked the question, so Jesus, 
what is the greatest commandment? How does Jesus respond? He says, well, actually, there's two. And in his response, Jesus is summarizing the first four commandments that deal with our relationship with God. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and your soul. And the second is like the first. And now he's summarizing the second table of the law, the next six commandments. Hey, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, so many people think of God's law this way, that it kind of restricts our freedom. But what God intends is for his law to help us express our freedom, the freedom to do the right thing, the freedom to do the loving thing, the freedom to do what honors God. But do we always do that? Shake your head no, because we don't. We don't perfectly keep the law. And that brings us to another purpose of God's law, to show us our need for a savior. And this is critically important. The law shows us that we are sinners who need a savior. Now, how many of you, and you can raise your hand, how many of you looked in a mirror before you came to church this morning? If you didn't raise your hand, we know who you are. <laughs> why, why did you look in the mirror? Seriously, why did you get up and look in the mirror this morning? Because you're having a crazy hair day? You, you wanted to make some adjust, adjustments in your appearance, right? And the only way you could see how you looked was to do what? You had to look in a mirror. Now here's the point, and some of us spent more time than others this morning making adjustments, but here's the point. The law of God, according to the Bible, is a mirror. The book of James tells us that. But when we look in this mirror, it doesn't just show us our outward appearance, it shows us the condition of what? The condition of our heart. Now, I want to read some Bible verses to you. This is from Romans chapter 3, and I want you to notice the logic of these verses when it comes to this purpose of showing us that we need a Savior. This is in chapter 3, verse 19. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world is guilty before God. Now, why is the whole world guilty before God? Because everybody's broken God's law. And then it goes on to say this, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Why? Because we don't do what the law commands. We don't love God supremely, and we don't love our neighbor perfectly. And then this, this statement by Paul, who was a follower of Jesus in the first century, he says this, the law simply shows us how sinful we are. So when you look into the law, when you look at those ten commands, you go, wow, I don't do that. I, I've broken this commandment. And listen, it's not just with our actions, is it? It could be with our thoughts, could be with our words. And this really is the essence of the bad news. Because this is what the bad news tells us. When we look into the scripture, it says, you're a sinner and you need a savior. And because we're sinful people, we're separated from a holy God. And because God is just, he has to punish every sin we've ever committed. You know, sometimes people don't think of sin as being all that serious. How many people would look at themselves and say, I'm a criminal? But what do you call somebody who breaks the law? This is God's law that we have broken. And in God's sight... We are criminals who deserve to be punished, and that's some pretty bad news, isn't it? And here's, here's what's even worse. We can't save ourselves. Paul says there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God, which means God has to take action, and he does. I love two words in Scripture, but God. See, we were sinners who need a Savior, but God intervened, and he sent Christ to this world. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, becomes a human being, and he does what we could never do. He keeps perfectly the law of God. 
He loves God perfectly. He loves people perfectly. And that uniquely qualifies him to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. And church, that's what happens on the cross. Jesus voluntarily lays down his life. And on the cross, God is willing to put our sin, our moral failure on Jesus and punish him in our place. And when you trust Jesus, when you say, you know what, Lord, I... I know that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I want to turn away from my sin. I believe you died and rose again and I'm going to follow you. When you make that choice, God not only forgives your sins, he gives you credit for the perfect life that Jesus lived. And that's an amazing thing. Now, as I was looking at the, the passage this week, I was imagining what it was like to actually be there and hear Jesus teach. And I was trying to put myself in the position of one of the religious leaders because these guys were probably going crazy when they heard Jesus begin to talk because in chapter 5, he doesn't begin with the law. He doesn't begin with a list of rules to keep. He talks about how people can, can find genuine happiness in a relationship with God. And so when he finally gets to the law, these Pharisees and these religious leaders were probably thinking, it's about time, Jesus. You better tell these people to shape up. Because if you take away the law, man, it's going to be nothing but chaos. They were afraid that Jesus was going to abolish the law of God. And that's why Jesus says this in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what does that mean? I mean, in practical terms, what does that mean for us? Well, here's the first thing. It means that Jesus fulfills the law in his teaching. In his teaching. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you find this repetitive phrase. Jesus says, you've heard it said in the past, but I myself say to you. Now, what is Jesus doing? Well, he's doing this. He's actually reorienting people's thinking about the law. He's restoring the original intention of the law, not just to judge people's outward actions, but the motivations of their hearts. Let me give you an example. If you've got your Bible up and look at verse 27, chapter 5. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Well, where is that command found? Where is that command found? Do not commit adultery. In the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's number seven. Top ten list, right? Do not commit adultery. And then notice this. But I tell you that anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And with his teaching, Jesus is not weakening the law. He's doing this. He's letting the law out of the cage that the religious leaders tried to put it in. Because these religious leaders were looking for loopholes. They wanted to be able to say, I did not have sex with that woman. And at the same time, some of you got that reference, and at the same time be able to undress women with their eyes. And Jesus goes, no, no, that's not how the law works. They were concerned about the letter of the law. Jesus is concerned about the spirit of the law. A law that judges not just your actions, but your heart. It's like the story about the, the preschool teacher, and she's having a really hard time with her classroom, and she's about to lose her patience, and she says, kids, sit down and be quiet. And all the kids obey, except for little Johnny. Johnny's standing up. All the kids are sitting down. And the teacher says, Johnny, I mean it. You sit down and be quiet. Little Johnny slowly sits down in his chair, he looks up at the teacher and says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. Jesus taught that true obedience involves not only our outward actions, but our what? 
our heart, the motivation of our heart. Now, here's another way that Jesus fulfills the law in his life, in his life. I think this is, is something that is absolutely remarkable, the fact that Jesus never sinned. Because, you know, he didn't just come to this world as an adult. He was a kid. How many of you parents have ever had a child go through the terrible twos? Or are teenagers? I mean, just think about this. Jesus never went through the terrible twos. I mean, he was a really obedient child. He, and he had brothers and sisters. They must have been, like, going crazy because, oh, yeah, well, Jesus thinks he's perfect. <laughs> Guess what? He is. Right? I mean, really, think about that. Because it says in the scripture, his brothers and sisters didn't believe in him at first. But he was, he was perfect. And here's the thing. This is what's really amazing. Was Jesus tempted to sin? Absolutely. And here's something that's really remarkable. You know, when we're tempted to sin, let's say that this is the line right here. I mean, I can be tempted. I get close to the line. Boom. All right? I give it to temptation. But Jesus felt the full brunt of temptation because he never stepped over the line. Can you imagine that? And there's a beautiful verse in the book of Hebrews, and it says this, Jesus understands every weakness of ours. How many of you have ever tempted to sin today? <laughs> it's a continual issue, isn't it? We're tempted to sin. And it says here, Jesus understands every weakness because, here's the reason, he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. And then it says this, so, so, whenever we are in need, and specifically in need of grace and power so that we don't go over the line, so that we don't fall into sin. When we're in need, let us come boldly before the throne of our merciful God. There we will be treated with undeserved kindness and we will find help. Isn't that incredible? That Jesus stands ready to help us obey the law of God by loving God and loving others. Well, here's one more way that Jesus fulfilled the law in his death. In his death. Now, there are times when we think, you know, sin's not that big a deal. Whenever we think that, we need to do this. We need to look at the cross. Our sin cost Jesus his life. And here's something else that I think is really important to understand. It's how Jesus fulfills other aspects of the law. There are people who read the Old Testament. I know there are a group of ladies that have just been through a study of the tabernacle. And there's all these rituals of sacrifice that have all these different laws. And the question is, well, do we still need to do that? And the answer is no. That law has been fulfilled because Jesus is the final sacrifice. And there are all these laws in the Old Testament. And it's kind of confusing because, you know, Israel is this nation. And there's all these civil laws that apply to the nation of Israel. Those are no longer in effect. Because the church is not one nation, is it? The church is many nations, and so the law, the civil law, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, there's one more way that the law is fulfilled, and let me quickly point this out with the following story. A number of years ago, our family had a dog, a medium-sized mutt. Her name was Mandy, and I wanted to train Mandy to obey my commands when she was not on a leash. And so I took her out in the front yard, and I had this, this kind of long leash, and she was over there, and I was here. And I would say, Mandy, come. She had no idea what I wanted her to do, so I would just take the leash and pull her over, and then she would be right in front of me, and I would say, Mandy, sit. And I'd you know, pull up on her collar, push down on her hindquarters. I would say, Mandy, heel. And I'd pull her around, and she would sit down at my left foot. So I did this over and over again, and she caught on really quickly. So I wanted to show my wife what an intelligent dog we had. 
So I go out in the front yard, and I said, Chris, you won't believe this. Mandy, is, she's trained. She is off-leash. So <laughs> Mandy sits down, and I'm like 20 feet away, and I say, Mandy, come. Man, she comes. I'm, Mandy, sit. She sits. Mandy, heal. And she just walks around. She followed every one of my commands. Not my wife, the dog. That's... Anyway, but here's, here's what I want you to see. It was an amazing thing because you couldn't see the leash. I mean, she was doing this because she wanted to do it. Now, why did my dog want to do that? And I think the answer is simple. It wasn't just for the doggy treat. It was because she wanted to please her master. And I thought, you know, isn't that what God wants from us? He wants us to be off-leash. He wants us to have this heart that is eager to obey our master. And I think that's exactly what the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah was talking about. He said that there's a new day when God is going to have a new covenant with his people where he is going to write his laws on their hearts. There's going to be this invisible leash that connects God's people to God because they love him so much that they want to serve him and obey him. And that brings us to this last way that Jesus fulfills the law in his followers. In his followers, in you and me, as he gives us this desire and ability to obey the law, to love God and love people. And that brings us to the next question on your outline. Well, so what? I mean, this is, you know, kind of interesting information. Jesus fulfills the law in his teaching, his life, his death, but so what? And I think what Jesus says in this passage helps us understand that. Because this is what Jesus says to the people that are gathered around. And imagine Jesus saying this to you. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus said that, you could have heard a pin drop. This was a shocking statement. In fact, there was this Hebrew saying that went like this. If only two people make it to heaven, one will be a Pharisee and the other will be a teacher of the law. Because they're the ones who do the best at keeping God's law. So if they don't have a shot, man, we're toast. There's no way that we'll ever make it into heaven. There's no way that God would ever accept us. Take a look at the statement on your outline. It says this, Your acceptance by God is not based on what you do, but on what Jesus has already done for you. And friends, this is the essence of grace. You could never do enough. Because you would have to be perfect for God to accept you. And here's the beauty of, of the gospel. When you decide that you're going to follow Jesus, when you ask for his forgiveness, and you surrender your life to him, God declares you righteous. And this is kind of a, a judicial pronouncement. It's like a judge bringing down the gavel and saying, not guilty. That's because Jesus paid your debt of sin. You are not guilty. And we call that justification. And when God looks at you, it's just as if you never sinned. But it gets even better. Because once you become a Christian, God sends the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to live in your heart. And this is what happens. You go through a process, it's called sanctification. You become more and more like Jesus. And God changes the desires of your heart. He gives you the ability to be free from sin. Now that's a lifelong process. But here's what I want you to see. If you're a Christian this morning, because the Spirit of God lives in you, you are free not to sin. Do you realize that? You don't have to sin. You are free not to sin. And I was thinking about it in terms of this story. There was this, this sailing ship, and it had a captain who was cruel. 
He was mean, he was vindictive, and he was always, always bossing his crew around. And then one day, a new captain comes on board. And this captain was very powerful, so he just relieved the other captain of his command, but he allowed him to remain on the ship. Of course, the sailors, because they had been with this other captain for so long, whenever he would try to boss them around, their default mode was to obey, and then they would go, wait, 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 wait. I don't have to do what this captain says, because I have a new captain. I can choose not to obey the old captain. I can choose to obey my new captain. And friends, that's a picture of what happens in our hearts. When you become a Christian, you have a new captain. And his name is Jesus. And this old sinful nature, you do not have to obey. You are free not to sin. And listen, I know that this morning as we talk about the laws, we talk about you know, loving God and loving people, as we talk about trying to honor God with our lives, we all struggle in many ways. There's no doubt. I mean, what trips you up temptation-wise may not trip me up, and what trips me up may not trip you up. But we struggle with sexual temptation, and we struggle with, with anger and addiction and anxiety, and we struggle with all kinds of things. But here's what God wants us to experience. Freedom. The freedom to choose not to sin. And there is a beautiful verse. You might want to write this down. It may be on your outline. I don't recall. It's Psalm 119, verse 32. Psalm 119 is all about the law of God. And it says this. This is King David. He says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Because that's what freedom does. It enables us to run in the path of God's commands. And so, church, the last question is this. Now what? I mean, God has given us a new life. He's ushered us into this arena of freedom where we can choose to do what honors him and pleases him. How are we supposed to live? And here's the answer. This is on your outline. Enjoy God's grace and extend God's glory. Enjoy God's grace and extend God's glory. And I wish I had a couple of hours to, to kind of walk us through that. But real quickly, let me do it with a story. We were in Africa in Nigeria, we were going to the home of the pastor who's planting a church there. And as we're riding down the street, we're in a van, and the windows of the van have these heavy curtains so the people can't see in. That minimizes the, um, the chance that we would be kidnapped. But we can kind of peek out the windows. So that's what we're doing. We're all kind of peeking out the windows, trying to see what's in the neighborhood there. And I look across the street, and there is an enormous mosque. I mean, it is huge. And they have this giant sign on the outside of the mosque, and it's in English, and it says this, a true Muslim is an obedient Muslim. Now, you don't have to read between the lines to understand what's being said there. Because there is a clash between two kingdoms, between Christians and Muslims in the nation of Nigeria. A true Muslim is an obedient Muslim. And I thought, well, let's go over here and talk about Christianity. A true Christian is what kind of Christian? an obedient Christian. And what does it mean to obey the law of God? It means this, love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, love your neighbors yourself. That's an obedient Christian. And friends, when we were in Nigeria meeting with these believers, I saw people who were passionate about living the life that honors God. They love Jesus. And they love their neighbor. And, and while we were there, one of the guys on our team, he was from Louisville, Kentucky, his church is helping to plant another church that meets in a village north of us. That very weekend, their pastor went missing. He was abducted. 
And they had no idea where he was. And of course, they feared the worst. But despite the persecution, despite the opposition, these believers are faithful to God. And they, they enjoy his grace. They are thankful for his grace, but they don't want to just keep that grace to themselves. They want to extend that grace to other people. And that's what it means to extend God's glory. Because listen, when God rescues somebody, who gets the credit? We don't get the credit because we didn't do it. God did it. And that's the idea. You have been rescued. You've been saved by grace. So pass that grace to somebody else. I remember coming home from Africa and I'm thinking about all this stuff and God, what do you want me to do with these experiences? Because you're changing my heart and I know that. And church, let me tell you something. I really believe this, that one of the primary ways that God changes a congregation is by changing the heart of the pastor. Because I believe that there is a ripple effect when that happens and that's happening here. I want you to know that. And I, I got in the car. Chris picked me up at the airport. You know, I'm exhausted. Um, I probably had slept about three hours in the last 30 hours. All I want to do is get home and crash. And so we're driving down our street. We turn into the driveway, and our neighbor across the street waves like this. And that's his signal. Hey, come over and talk to me. Come hang out. And, and Chris and I have been building a relationship with our neighbor across the street. His wife died, and we're, you know, just trying to really love him. And so I'm sitting in the car, and I look at Chris, and it's like, oh, really? I just want to go in the front door. And it was, it was almost like a test. I really felt that way. God was saying, hey, you went all the way to Africa, right? And you're talking about loving me and, and loving your neighbor. How about going across the street? And I said, okay, Lord, okay. I can go across the street. And we went across the street, and we talked to our neighbor, and we loved him. And I had this thought the other night. Are we willing to do that as a way of life? Are you willing to walk across the street and love your neighbor? To love the neighbor in the next cubicle, the next desk, wherever God places you. Because loving your neighbor means that you meet their needs physically and emotionally and spiritually. That you take the risk of not just basking in the grace that God's given you, but extending that grace to somebody else. Because that's what extends God's glory. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion, which is an opportunity to experience God's grace. But on the communion table is an invitation card. And this is an invitation card to one of our three Easter services. So I want to ask you to do this today. Look at your outline. It says, now what? What's the first thing? Enjoy God's grace. And what's the second thing? Extend His glory by sharing the hope with somebody else. Because listen, if you invite somebody to come to BBCC on Easter, they will hear the gospel. And they will have a chance to make a decision that will forever change their lives. The question is, will you do that? Will you step into somebody's life? Will you walk across the street and issue that invitation? And church, here's what I pray with all my heart, that more and more we will be a church that reflects the heart of God that we will honor God by obeying his law, which is simply this, to love God and to love our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love. Thank you for your great grace. But God, I know that you don't want us to just stop there. You want us to extend that grace to others because God, that's how your glory gets extended 
when people realize what a great and awesome God you are because you're the one who rescues us. And so God, today, as we celebrate communion once again, remind us that, yeah, Jesus, he loves me, but he loves a lot of other people too, and they need to hear about him. So God, give us that kind of heart, a heart like yours, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.